Is it cold outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Love the law, did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything. Hello everybody and uh, welcome to uh this next uh, Ask Alan, the podcast uh, in our series. I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm. And today I'm joined by uh, one of my best friends, uh, colleagues, and one of the great uh, attorneys in Memphis, that's Miles Mason. Miles and I, many of you may know, uh, were law partners for about 14 and a half years. Had uh, what I'll describe as one of the most boring uh, law firm breakups in the history of law firm ba- uh, breakups. Uh, neither one of us were escorted from the building uh, and we're still speaking to one another. So I think that puts us in the top 0.1% of uh, attorney breakups in terms of drama. Miles, thank you for uh, coming on Ask Allen. My pleasure. Uh, Miles, uh, I know that, that folks out there want to know uh, the Miles Mason origin story. Um, and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions I already know the answer to, but that's how this interview thing works. Uh, they always say a good lawyer never asks a question they doesn't already know the answer to. Um, but, uh, are you a native Memphian? I am. Born and, and raised. And tell us a little bit about that. Where, what part of Memphis and, and what was it like growing up in, in Memphis, Tennessee back in the day? Well, back in the day, it was a lot like it is today, in a, in a strange sense. Uh, my earliest memories involve uh, curfews and uh, potentials for riots. We had a lot of racial unrest at the time. 1971 was the first year for busing, mandatory busing in Memphis, which coincided with my first grade experience, although I ended up uh, attending Catholic. Uh, schools and then going into Christian Brothers, but yeah, I grew up in the uh, in East Memphis. Um, I still have my father's phone number that he acquired in 1957 when he brought the bought a brand new home uh, just down the street from St. Agnes when that subdivision was built. So roots are deep and. Uh, love the community i live and have lived within a few miles of that area almost my entire life uh one thing that uh is really unique about your uh, childhood uh is uh, a fellow that lived across the street from your house that it was a, a legendary character in certain circles in uh in memphis and that's a fellow named jim mcwilly what uh who lived to be over a hundred fought in the Second World War. Uh, tell me a little bit about Jim McWillie, because he's uh, not just a Memphis character, but, but really kind of, in a lot of ways, a national character. Absolutely. I was very, very lucky to um, meet him. He moved in across the street from me when I was four. Allegedly, I walked up to him as they were unloading uh, the furniture Uh, from the trucks into his house and allegedly said to him, hey, you guys got a lot of nice stuff. (laughs) We became friends and he's probably in the top five influences in my life. Uh, 
I grew up learning the stories about World War II. He took off on over 30 missions. He was a Golden Glove boxer. He was a a CBC grad, uh, class of 1933. And so he was 27 years old and went into training for to be a glider pilot and D-Day happened and they realized gliders were not a good idea because the death rate was unbelievable because there's no way to pick where you're going to land and there's no guarantee you're going to be in a field and that you're not just going to stop immediately and then everybody in the glider would fly forward and it just didn't work out well. So shortly thereafter, he was uh, reassigned to learn radios and became a gunner and a radio man on uh, then what would become the Army Air Corps and took off for 30 missions to drop bombs over Germany. And obviously, between that and the guy, uh, Golden Gloves boxer experience, he was a huge influence on how a man should live, in addition to my dad. But he got me involved in community service at age 13. I started working the St. Peter's Home for Children Fourth uh, of July picnic with him. I didn't understand what community service was until he said, well, I'll, be, I'll, I'll come pick you up in the morning. And he called my parents and they started giggling. He picked me up at four. <laughs> we, we roll over, get some breakfast, and then go hit the picnic. And then he brought me home at, at four o'clock the next morning after the whole day of picnic. So we helped set it up and we helped close it down. But then I started meeting everybody in the Catholic community, uh, just hanging out with him and uh, met Dick Hackett long before he was married. Um, and just started getting a sense of what it means to be involved in the community. Around that time, the bishop uh, of the then brand new Memphis Diocese hired Mr. McWilly to be the number one businessman for the diocese. And so he raised the money for all of the schools out in the Shelby County that didn't exist uh, in 1971. and. So he bought, raised the money, bought the land, negotiated the deals, built the schools, and crafted what would become the Catholic Diocese of Memphis. And in that process, he met everyone. And this was after his career had ended in uh, automobile fam- financing, where he met everybody. Later, he became chair of MLG and W board. Uh, still stayed active in many uh, until he passed away in. in 101 a couple of years ago stayed with his hands in the in the catholic diocese making whatever contribution he was asked to make but yeah i had to go uh at an early age go move furniture over at the bishop's house you know if there (laughs) if there was a need for cheap labor i got grabbed and, and 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 went to go do it but ultimately what i learned from him was community service is not an option it's something that is required of us and gives us in return back a lot more than we put into it. And so for, for many, uh, uh, 
Also, on a side note, his wife, Elizabeth, was one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, I had, uh, before I got married to my wife, Sharon, I had to vet her through uh, Mrs. McWillie. She passed the test. And uh, I think she said, if you don't marry that woman, you're an idiot. And <laughs> right off the bat. So, and I named one of my children, Elizabeth, in her honor. So obviously a very, very tight connection. She taught me a lot about life and, and uh, two important marriage lessons in terms of value. Number one, just because you have a fight doesn't mean you have to get a divorce, okay? I thought that was pretty simple. But then the second thing is if you're in a fight, don't say the meanest thing you can think of. Just don't say it. Because we all know our spouses, well, I would assume if you have a halfway decent marriage, you know your spouse's insecurities and you know their buttons to push. Don't push them. It's that simple. And so I've tried, not always successfully, to live up to that. But those are two of my best pieces of advice that I still, that I receive that I share with uh, clients and friends. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's amazing. You get to be our age and you look back over your life and there's, you know, a handful of people like that, that uh, were in your life. And if they hadn't been, uh, your life would be a whole lot different. Uh, and uh, I'm, I think I met Mr. McWillie uh, through you when we were law partners uh, late in his life and, and uh, late in my life, later in my life than you met him. I was much older than four when I met him. Um, but I could tell, you could tell this was a, this was a guy who didn't put up with much. Uh, who, you know, lived by a pretty simple code. He did what he said he was going to do. He tried to treat people as better than he would treat himself and uh, uh, over uh, under promise and over deliver. And uh, it's a pretty simple way of living life. But if you do that, you can be very successful. Right. One is a quick story that you were talking about him at a national level. And there was a, that was a level that I wasn't quite as familiar with until we were discussing that particular award that he got from the Vatican. And, but before that, one of my favorite stories is, uh, uh, you had given me a wonderful gift of a trip to Augusta National. And Mr. McWillie ended up on that flight with us and I took my son and we were underneath the, the big ornate tree there at, uh, where they sell the, the lunch food, where you get your pimento cheese, your burger, whatever. And uh, we just started talking and uh, it just kind of came up in conversation naturally. I'm not sure how, but it did, that Mr. McWillie had a, uh, a couple of conversations with Mother Teresa. And my son, <laughs> you know, Miles goes, whoa, 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 wait a second, <laughs> back that up. And I didn't, I didn't really think that much of it because I'd known so much of his background and he'd been active as a Catholic at the national and international level. And so Miles asked to, uh, you spoke with Mother Teresa. I go, well, yeah, we were such and such, such, which she wasn't a saint then. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, his award that he got, um, uh, via the Vatican, you can talk about that more than I can as far as what that means and the significance of what he was able to accomplish and how people 
recognized within the Catholic Church, his contributions went way beyond uh, business as usual. Yeah, basically for um, his work in starting the diocese uh, financially and, and so forth, he was, uh, uh, the Pope uh, made him a knight, a knight of St. Gregory, which is uh, an order of knighthood for lay Catholics. And it's about the highest order of knighthood um, you can get through the Holy See without uh, being a head of state. And, and he ranked, you know, in, in that kind of uh, hierarchy, that, that level of knighthood ranked him as the equivalent uh, to uh, an archbishop. And certainly he was the highest ranking churchman, lay churchman in, in Memphis, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, but I think, I think what it really speaks to is, uh, as you say, is, is uh, his level of accomplishment. And, you know, he's the last person in the world that would ever tell anybody that he had the award. Uh, you'd never know it. And um, I, I remember when he turned 100, Mayor Strickland wanted to do, a, I think we did a proclamation for him or, or, or something, and he wouldn't let us read it at, at the party. Um, you know, uh, that they had a Christian brothers for him. Um, he just didn't want the, he didn't want the attention. I don't think he even really wanted to go to the party, but he enjoyed seeing people so much. That's why he, why he went, but, um, he, he's a great guy and he's a, he's a great, um, embodiment of another part of your life, which is, uh, Christian brothers high school. I think he was a product of both the, the high school and the college, I think, wasn't he? Or you know where he went? No, he didn't, he didn't have any college. Okay. And so he ended up with a, with a job out of New York. And then it just, he was, he started at the bottom of the bottom at Murdoch uh, car loans. And he started out and they were reticent to give him uh, any real authority or power to go sell until he was working so hard and had so many hours in there, they just were forced to give him a promotion to where everybody else was because he didn't have a, any, any college education. So it, it, long story short, yeah, he was at uh, CBU, but he, or CBC, but even at the time he was in high school, he lived for a little bit at St. Peter's Home for Children because of the depression and everything else, his mother wasn't able to take care of him. So he ended up uh, being very close with the brothers and uh, kind of a story went on from there. Later he was made an honorary Christian brother as well. And he was as proud of that as anything. So, uh, so you, you went to Christian Brothers for high school. I did. Uh, what was that like? It was probably the most formative thing that happened to me. My dad went there, my brothers went there, my son went there, my uncle went there. Uh, you know, it was just everybody. It was the center of our universe for many, many years because I have three uh, brothers that are much older. And so my first memories were, they were all in the band. So I went to every Christmas concert starting in, uh, you know, as long as I was old enough. So age three, 1968 was probably my first Christmas concert at Christian Brothers. And uh, 
I had no musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> so I did not follow in my father and brother's footsteps with music. Uh, but what made it formative uh, was pretty simple. A few things. First, uh, I had some great relationships with some of the brothers. I had, uh, but more importantly, I spent four years in a classroom there in the honors program with some really, really bright kids that all have become accomplished in their fields. And uh, some right now are some of the uh, leading scientists in their fields. One of my, one of my classmates, uh, uh, Joanne Cardona, ended up being the star witness in the, the big um, Gulf oil spill case about damages and um, the impact on the environment on a, on a technical level that I'm unable to even describe. <laughs> I've re I read an article about his involvement and talked to his brother about it, but you know, it's just, and he had already, he had, he had competed in the national science fair and sat in front of me for four years and I knew he was brilliant. Um, I always wore a flannel shirt to school with a tie, which I thought that was a little bit odd. Even in the hot summer, he's in a flannel shirt just to make a point. That's comfortable. <sighs> oh, it's not. <laughs> no, and they, they, they always had the air conditioning as low as they could to save money over there. So really just being in that room was very humbling uh, because I was not the smartest person in the room by a long shot for four straight years. Uh, so more, it was a culture of work, a culture of pride. And, you know, my parents weren't the type to say, oh, you need to go study. That, that never happened. I just did it. It wasn't a question of whether it was an option or a requirement or that was never a discussion in the house. So I averaged probably four, four and a half hours uh, studying every night for Christian Brothers just to keep up with the honors program crowd. And, um, but yeah, just being around that kind of uh, intense group of smart people, a lot of, uh, you had to be, you had to be able to stand up for yourself and be very aggressive orally at any moment in time. Because <laughs> if you say something stupid in class, people are going to, rip you and but it was fun and it was challenging and from there almost everything seemed easy now of course that's not the case certainly law school was harder blah 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 but I was set up to succeed and to the extent um, one says I have a lot of privilege that was the privilege to be able to be in the honors program for four consecutive years with a very high level of quality teachers, including uh, Bob Crone, your, your dad's double first cousin. That's right. And, you know, so I go down to Bama and I take calculus and I didn't miss a, a question. And I never went to a class because I didn't have to. I would just show up and take the test. And I made a hundred every time because Coach Crone was a great, teacher of calculus and it was just a repeat so um and I, tr I tried to clip out of it but I wasn't good enough to clip out of it um and I didn't really want to go to the effort because I, I was trying to pad my GPA with calculus 
at Bama because I knew I was either going to law school or med school or whatever. So I was always worried about making sure my <laughs> grades were up there. So, uh, yeah, but it, but most importantly, uh, you know, I had uh, brother Ray Bonder read at our wedding. Uh, when my mother died in 1989, three of the Christian brothers showed up. My dad and mom spent countless hours running the bingo for the band fundraising. And it was just part of my life, really, from the 1960s until I left in the 1983. And then once my son got back into it, I was sucked back into that university. But I, I did uh, try to get back a little bit with the, I served a little over 10 years on the Alumni Association Board and was president uh, for a while over there as the uh, and uh, spent a year on the board of trustees. And, I, and I'll add, uh, also a member of the Christian Brothers uh, Hall of Fame. Yes. As your father was a member of the Christian Brothers Hall of Fame. Yes, and my father-in-law. So that's one of my um, more treasured honors. Yeah, yeah. And then so after high school, you went to uh, a little, uh, little college down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, that's had some recent success in sports, uh, the University of Alabama? Yes, it was a culture shock. Uh, going in 1983, when I went to Alabama, felt like I went back in time 15 years. It felt like 1968 and on a lot of different levels. And But in a good way, I got to see a lot of the transition down there um, again, I was very, my dad suggested I go down there. My dad was a CPA and knew that the accounting department had a great reputation. And so I went down there, joined the accounting department, uh, made really good grades, worked my butt off and, um, had a great time. I mean, it's a, it's a country club, no question. Even back then, a lot of great pickup basketball. I mean, really top-notch top notch competition, uh, just, just in pickup, for goodness sakes. There's just so many great athletes there. Tons of, D, of athletes that were all state in different sports but didn't even bother to try to play for Alabama. I mean, just quality players. I don't know what that was about. Uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, had a lot of people from Memphis there made some great relationships, but mostly just got a lot of work done during the day and at night, uh, finish up, tune up, whatever. But uh, great social scene. Back in the day, we only had like four bars that um, people would go to. <laughs> so it was pretty easy to just go to the places, grab a beverage, chit chat with people that you know, and uh, that's that. You know, and then I was able to get a job in Atlanta uh, with a big eight accounting firm, and that was that. But yeah, when I went to as many football games as I could. Um, unfortunately, we had to travel most of the time over to uh, uh, Birmingham, and that stadium is not good. <laughs> it wasn't good then, not good now. And um, and to see. Bright Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa now compared to what it was. It's, it's just hard to fathom that we have an NFL, better than an NFL quality stadium. Uh, 
but yeah, the, the football program, a um, lot of fun, a lot of pain being an Alabama fan uh, because the losses uh, are much more memorable uh, because they're so infrequent, but that doesn't make them any less painful. So I'm much more likely to be able to tell you everything about our losses since Coach Saban came on board rather than our victories, you know. And well, I was going to ask you what what your your take as a as an alumni and uh, supporter of the tremendous uh, national championship drought uh, that y'all are going through now. Is it two years in a row or uh, just one year that without a national championship? Two. That's a long time for you guys, isn't it? Feels that way. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what's it? What, what is Saban in trouble? I mean, uh, you know, it, if he doesn't pull, bring another one home this year, if we play football this year, uh, is he going to be looking for a job, or do you think he's got another couple of years to rebuild? Yeah, that that's actually quite a uh, fun topic to annoy Bama fans with. The creepy topic is that he's going to turn 69 this year. So uh, he doesn't look 69. And um, whoever he's got working with him, I want to meet them <laughs> as soon as I turn 60. Um, yeah, I mean, we lost to um, Clemson in the national championship game a couple of years back. And – you know, I told people this. I may have shared this with you as well. I mean, I was really bummed out about it because of the important difference between having won six out of the last ten national championships versus five out of the last ten national championships. I mean, that's a huge difference. So what am I going to do with that? You know, so – but um, off screen, I'll be glad to share with, you, uh, with, share with you a number of videos about some of the new recruits. And it appears that we're going to be able to field a team this year. So if we play, we'll, we, we will have new people to replace uh, the huge wave of people that went into the NFL. Well, that's, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yes. Um, so after, after, uh, eventually after college, you, you made your way to law school. Yes. I was an accountant and CPA for four years. Uh, and that's why I guess you and I missed each other and we missed each other in high school because you were in Illinois avoiding me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was warned. The Christian the, uh, admissions office. Uh, did accept me. I applied, and they said, "Well, I, now you realize that Miles Mason is going to be here in your class." And I said, you know, "I'm going to the seminary." So that's yeah. So you know, that's one of the odd things because I doubt you and I would have ever become law partners if we'd gone to high school together. Well, you and I have talked about the the chances that not only we would not have been law partners, but we probably would have been mortal enemies, uh, or at least not friends. But you know, if things but, were different, they wouldn't be the same. Yeah, I don't, you know, it would have been real interesting because it really just depends on which crowd you would have fallen into. So I had my group and then this other, uh, and uh, several people in my group ended up being lawyers. And then there's this other group 
that also include some lawyers. And so we had a little bit of divide between those two groups running for SGA president, which uh, was not, uh, so I spent most of my time working for my guy for SGA president. And we lost uh, less than 1% of the vote at two o'clock in the morning. So, uh, and then of course, <laughs> yeah, then I lost my race as well. So we were out, my group was out. So, uh, yeah, but it would have been real interesting. Uh, mostly it would have been my fault because I was such a a-hole in high school. I mean, as you know, I'm still an a-hole, but. Uh, but you've made that work for you. Well, that, that's a separate. <laughs> All right. But uh, where were we going with that? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Um, what, uh, all right, so you're practicing accounting, you're an accountant in, uh, uh, Atlanta and then Houston, right? Yes. Yes. And, uh, what make, what makes you decide to look at law school? Well, I, I had been interested in law my whole life. I loved, uh, I learned early on, I loved public speaking, loved the attention, even though I'm a massive introvert. I loved, um, you know, our time doing the Mike Fleming radio show. Really enjoyed that. Uh, enjoyed people coming up and saying, hey, heard you on the show. So law school was my, uh, was the end goal for accounting. My older brother, as you know, uh, worked for Price Waterhouse as a CPA, and then he went to Bandy Law and his uh, practice in Memphis since. So that all accounting was, was my pre-law. Mom, uh, my mother died Christmas Day, 1989. I had shortly thereafter moved back to Memphis, uh, met my beautiful bride, asked her to marry me, and got busy applying to law school, finishing a uh, CPA exam, which I, I did before we got married, and then uh, entered into law school. So that was... And I had a plan A and a plan B in law school. Plan A was a commercial litigator with a big law firm. Plan B was uh, divorce. And since I didn't get any offers from a big, uh, big law, law firm, I ended up in the divorce world. Even though I knew I wanted to practice family law, that was my main passion. The other passion was uh, putting food on the table. So... Uh, one was very practical, but both would allow me to apply the the skills I'd learned in accounting, and so that's what uh, what I spent most of my time trying to focus on was how do I put those two together, and I wasn't really prepared for how much I would end up using in my accounting degree and CPA background in family law, and that turned out to be a great. Uh, leg up to this day yeah i i would uh imagine particularly in cases where one or both of the parties are uh have an interest in uh an independent business or other financial interests having that background is helpful in, in navigating all of that yeah and one of the one of the core problems family lawyers face is uh what do you do with the appreciation of separate property? And that can be incredibly complex because as you would imagine, the court of appeals judges 
uh, like to make that as difficult of an issue as possible, which benefits me because I can argue both sides of the issue pretty well with some of the case law out there. But just running the numbers and running the math um, intimidates so many lawyers that were uh, uh, history majors and political science majors that it uh, helps me settle cases much more often than most people would possibly imagine. I haven't practiced a lot of family law, as you know. Uh, when I first started practicing, I had uh, several uh, custody cases and divorce cases and, and so forth. Uh, but watching you for 14 and a half years and, and getting to know the ins and outs of the cases that you had, it, it really is kind of amazing the breadth of, of, of issues that affect, affect a divorce. I mean, it's not just visitation and parenting and, um, uh, you know, grounds and all of that sort of thing, but you can get into things like business valuations and valuing pensions and uh, lots of societal issues about how to parent uh, all in the same case. And um, I, th I think family law is much more complex than a lot of lawyers who don't do a lot of it think. They just think, oh, it's, you know, you get divorced and you divide up the money and you decide who gets the kids and that's the end of it. I think you're right, as well as employment law. I mean, how many clients did you and I have at the same time? Yeah. But somebody it's amazing a, how uh, uh, certain uh, marital issues can affect your employment. Yes. Yes. And sometimes just keeping that, keeping uh, or brushing things under the rug, people think that that's uh, easy because it's easy to say that, but it's hard to do and hard to do well and hard to do quietly. Yeah, but that's one of the reasons why I really ended up loving family law a lot more than I thought I would if that makes any sense. I love the idea of getting into these different issues. And what I found was that my favorite part of being a lawyer is what I tell people is very simple. I get to meet really neat people who are smart, eccentric, because let's you know, face it, some lawyers are just wacky. And, but I enjoy meeting them. And as, uh, I did a video talking to young, uh, uh, law students who are applying for jobs, I said, you got to be ready for the wacky lawyer, <laughs> you know, on the interview. You get, there's one in every firm. So uh, long way around the barn, that's my favorite part, is being able to um, figure out what you don't know, pick up the phone, call somebody, and ask for help. What do I need to read? What do I need to consider? Does my client need a consult from another lawyer in another area of law? And we consult often with trust attorneys, estate attorneys, especially financial advisors, trying to figure out because when you've got a variable annuity and you've got to divide that asset, what's it worth given the consideration of the surrender values? And this, that's just one example of a pain in the ass because you can't just drop and say, well, you get half, I get half of a variable annuity. It doesn't work that way. Or stock options or uh, uh, compensation, complex compensation with uh, bonuses. So we don't even know what the value is going to be uh, at the time that the option expires. So we have to guess 
well, how do we guess? And there are whole trials down in, the, in every courthouse in America arguing about what a stock option is going to be worth, which is essentially you're asking the judge to predict the future, but that's the nature of the game. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's never dull. It's certainly never dull. Um, one thing that I would be remiss if, if we didn't cover, and uh, that is um, your, uh, your father-in-law, Judge Joe B. Jones, who was uh, the presiding judge of the Court of Criminal Appeals when he died. And uh, again, because of my association with you, I got to know him um, uh, for several years. And just talk a little bit about Joe and, and what kind of guy he was and what kind of impact he had on your uh, life as a lawyer. So my favorite part of my relationship with him was how uh, difficult it was in the beginning. So uh, one of the weird things is when Sharon and I got married, she pulled together her family's wedding invitation list. We pulled my family. There was a lot of overlap. I mean, we grew up down the street. Both of our parents had gone to Christian Brothers High School. Sharon's family had been like four or five generations deep into St. Agnes. So it's not that unusual, but they weren't, they still ran in somewhat different circles. So fast forward uh, the week after the wedding, you know, I'm around the judge, it's just the two of us, and he's got nothing to say. And what am I gonna say to him? Well, over time I developed, he had three, I developed a theory, he had three topics that he was interested in talking about. Golf, he had played college golf and was considering a run at the PGA Tour because he's pretty damn good. Uh, second, politics. And at the time I married into the family, I didn't know how deep his roots went in the Republican Party at the time. And was, uh, you know, personal friends with Don Sunquist, who would later become governor, you know, Go, uh, he had uh, chaired Curtis Person Sr.'s first election campaign, probably, what, 69. Um, so he knew everybody and, and uh, had grown up in politics with his grandfather being vice mayor of the city and head of the Police and Fire Commission from 1940 to 1950. So he, he and his dad was a lawyer and knew everybody in town as well. So politics, I didn't know anything about and hadn't been involved in anything really at that time. And then uh, law, which I hadn't been to law school yet. So over time, we developed a, uh, a very close relationship where he would share with me the gossip among the judges statewide, um, what, what bad activity was going on over in East Tennessee. I didn't know these people more than <laughs> but he didn't have anybody else to gossip with. And then, uh, so, and then we watched the masters together. My favorite moment, uh, when I, when I see him again in heaven, he actually uttered the words at the 1997, uh, masters, you know, I, I don't think this Tiger Woods is going to make it you know? <laughs> media. You know, because there was Nike commercials, every other commercial on ESPN, I'm Tiger Woods. Yeah, I don't know. I know he did pretty well in this Masters, but this is just luck. Okay. 
And uh, yeah, so we ended up being very good. But what he taught me mostly was how to, how to treat people. And uh, if somebody wrongs you, you don't forget. But if you can do for others, do for others and try to help people out when you can and just keep it simple be humble which uh some people could argue i did not do a good job of following that but i would hope and he said always treat the court clerks and the court personnel um like family and be polite and i uh, said so, well i'm not polite to my family and he says well you know i have to learn how to do that and <laughs> Because they can kill you. And so, yeah, just just his graciousness of sharing with me the way he thought about cases. Um, I think I told you this. During law school, if there was a – I would always look up the opinions that were being published by him during law school. And if there was a dissent, I would read the dissent. Okay. And I wouldn't read his side of the opinion because I didn't have time. I was in law school, for God's sake. But I'd, I'd go in, you know, on the, on the State v. Jones uh, decision, you know, Judge Tipton had a really good point when he said such and such. And then I could just sit back. Sit back, yeah, let it go. 45 minutes, we'd have a great conversation. So that's really how I broke the ice was arguing with him on his own opinions and and so that's where i got the idea he would uh hold up fingers put it over your eyes and then he'd look up and say don't get me wrong <laughs> so i still say don't get me wrong and look up to the ceiling and homage to him but uh great influence as uh in law uh great personality larger than life personality and um you know, I, I have no doubt if he had survived um, his health issues, he would have been on the Supreme Court of Tennessee. No question. He was a great lawyer, great judge, uh, great family guy, just a, a wonderful old school uh, type guy. And uh, I, it was my pleasure to know him just very, very briefly. Um, let's switch gears a little bit, Miles. We're, we're starting to run out of time. But I, one thing I, I did want to talk to you about is from your vantage point, um, you know, I know that that it's kind of uh, cliche these days to say that we're in a new normal or, um, you know, it's strange times, all those kinds of things. But the quarantine and the reduced activity uh, is probably putting strain on a lot of families. Uh, any um, tips that you can give parents on how to be uh, better parents uh, amid the stress of quarantine and uncertainty? Absolutely. The, the big thing is to be able to communicate, and that means being nice with somebody you don't want to be nice with. I mean, it's hard enough to be nice to your existing spouse, much less a former spouse, sometime with all the pressure that goes on with raising children. Uh, yeah, so communicate, communicate, communicate. And my, my favorite story that I share with people that tends to get the most head nodding from my clients. And I tell him, I said, I've got a, I got a speech. You, let's fast forward two, three years. You've got Grizzlies tickets that have been just dropped in your lap at five o'clock that are free and are great seats, okay? Because that's when you get your free ticket is right before the game because nobody else is able to use them. 
And that's the way it generally goes in most corporate entities, unless you're the CEO and you're the one that doles them out. So you want to, but if you don't have your kids and you've got these tickets at the last minute, you want to have the kind of relationship with your spouse that allows you to call them and say, hey, I got a ticket to the Grizzlies game, starts at 7.05, can I come pick them up, take them to dinner and, and eat at the forum? And if the answer is yes, you've got, you've got open field running to be a great parent. And correspondingly, I tell my client, if you get that call from another parent, let them go. Because what happens when you get the Grizzlies tickets? Or have you, you have something where you need the other side to be flexible and be the pay, or be a paid, uh, an unpaid babysitter? So it's a give and take process. And, but the thing is, you got to get the first person to say yes. And I always advise my clients to, to go ahead and say yes. And you may say yes again. And you may say yes again. There's the brink of insanity, and then there's the abyss on just being a, a punching bag. But on the other hand, you want to be able to have that kind of flexibility because if you have that kind of flexibility and that kind of horse trading, give and take relationship, you're not going to be paying a divorce lawyer post-divorce to handle problems. You're going to be able to work them out. Now, there are some problems that are hard to work out, but uh, like relocation and other things like that. But at the same time, having that kind of flexibility matters. And then with COVID, you know, talk. Uh, I did several uh, TV interviews just saying, hey, share with each other what you're doing trying to have a consistent regime between the two houses. And one of the things with that is so simple is consistent bedtime, consistent rules when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, the dadgum uh, video games, all right? So if one parent says, I only want my kid doing it 90 minutes, and the other parent says, no, I think two hours is fine, compromise, but come up with the same rule. Let's not fight over that. And then, of course, cell phones are a big problem. What happens when another spouse, when the other spouse is paying for the phone and takes the phone, the other parent really needs to support those decisions, regardless of whether they agree with them or not. Consistent enforcement of discipline is key. And then finally, just read. Parents should read everything they can about co-parenting, get as much advice as they can, be smart because, and, and if they can't get along, good fences make good neighbors. You definitely want to have as many boundaries as possible spelled out in terms of who does what and why and when. And if you can spell out a, much, uh, a bunch of boundaries, sometimes it'll work out. Now, there's always parents uh, who I call lawyer parents that if it's written a certain way and they can circumvent a provision with an exception, they're gonna do it. Well, there's nothing you can do with those jackass uh, parents and it can be equally men or women. But at the same time, you have to uh, sail between the cell and Charybdis between good consistent discipline and working with the other parent, even when you think the other parent is wrong, okay? And the, the first step is the parent that says, yes, I'll do that. I'll agree to that. I'll work with you on that. And if that first person 
can um, be smart about it, but also have something to ask in return, then you find a balance of power, okay? And that's always hard because there's always an imbalance in power. One party usually almost makes more in uh, money than the others, or they're gonna remarry money and the other, the original parent doesn't have it. Who knows? There's always some imbalance of power. There's always usually some alpha within the relationship and you have to manage it. So if you're, if you're a person that feels walked on, don't let yourself be walked on uh, unreasonably. And if you're the person that's always making demands and concessions and requests, well, you may want to dial that back a little bit. Because at the end of the day, if the kids can read, get their timetables down, and um, figure out that school is their way to success, uh, then the parents are going to be successful. Because the problems with parenting in 2020 the, the problems come at your kid from the internet and you don't see it. So it's in your peripheral vision as opposed to when you and I were growing up and the simple thing was underage drinking, you know, and that was, that was a little bit different because drinking age was 18 anyway. So you, you had high schoolers with the ability to go buy booze. But on the other hand, hopefully our parents taught us to be responsible and not be an idiot with the booze and uh, that's where my dad he, he knew what was out there he just said don't be an idiot and he gave me a good example he drank but never acted like an idiot so why would why, why would I want to drink and act like an idiot or drive a car when I'm, you don't have to do that to have a good time even if even if there might be a uh refreshing beverage available to to the person in high school which when we were in high school it was everywhere long way around the barn of parenting is hard enough doing it in a divorce situation is even harder but the stakes what's at stake is so high because the delta between a kid that's well adjusted coming out of high school and their likelihood of being employed self-reliant resistant to um, I guess uh, fads and peer pressure compared to the other one who has parents fighting and bickering and arguing it's night and day it's night and day because the first time that kid hits hits a wall or makes a mistake or has a failure or has life kick them in the teeth they're going to fold like a lawn chair because they don't have good examples of what it means to navigate difficult problems in life. And so also for teenagers, I always tell my clients, their biggest influence is no longer about rules. Sure, they can control, parents can only control two things for teenagers, freedom and money, okay? You can take away the phone, you can take away the car, but half the parents I know don't have the guts to do that. And then the, the um, the rest, it's all about an influence of what kind of an example you are. And I'll take this opportunity to say, you've been one of the biggest influences in my life. And because of your uh, uh, gracious giving back to the church, the community, the, the service you have for the church especially, one of the highlights of my life was uh, four hours at the cathedral, 
watching your investiture and uh, when you became a deacon. And uh, we were all sweating and some of us were standing, many of us were standing, it was standing room only. But what it meant was um, all the work and effort that you were giving back and giving to others, both through becoming a deacon and being able to be there. And then of course, everything you've done since, including going to Lourdes and, um, uh, and, and sharing uh, very important messages from our church and, and our Lord. I can't think of anything more inspiring than that. So I, I wanted to make sure I, I said something about the inspiration you've, you've given me uh, and, and how that relates to parenting is, you know, try to tell parents, it's not about you. It is about you, but it's not about you. Um, your child is going to be who they are, but maybe your biggest influence isn't what you say, but what you do. And that's why we talk a lot about with my clients as they're getting a divorce, what can you do? That's a good example, which could include the simple, the easiest way to get back to people is be active in your church. You know the people there already. Uh, just show up to join something. Be a joiner. And then if you can't do that, pick a, um, pick a charity and help them raise money. If you like dogs, help raise money for the Humane Society. There's, there's a lot of ways to, to give back. And uh, without having to spend five years in a what is it, diaconate program? Did I say that right? Diaconate formation program, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's a commitment. You know, I have a hard time making a commitment on what I'm going to have for dinner, much less, you know, what you did with, with uh, what was the full, it was supposed to be four, but it, it morphed into five because of the change in the bishop or something like that. No, it was, it was it's actually a six-year program. Uh, oh. One year was was aspirancy, and then five years of academic formation. But I don't count. I, I always say that was the easiest part because uh, you know it was pretty regimented, and I enjoyed I enjoyed the study. Um, but uh, you're awful nice. I, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, while we're while we're talking, you know, I've said this many times to many people, but Miles um, is the brother I never had. We were we were partners for 14 and a half years. He handled the money. Uh, I worried about a lot of things during those those years, but one thing I never worried about was uh, whether whether uh, Miles was going to mishandle the money or be sharp with me in any way. And you you were always very generous, and you're a great partner. And uh, um, uh, those fourteen and a half years were great, and uh, we're still very close, as you can tell. And we could probably go on talking for another hour, and may do it once we get off the off uh, offline, but. Um, I'm gonna have. I'm I'm running out of time. So, um, Miles, we we didn't get to talk about John Wilder. We didn't get to talk about our years of practice together, politics. We touched a little bit on Mike Fleming. That sounds like a second show to me at some point. So we'll we'll bring we'll come back and we'll talk about all those things. It would be a pleasure. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you. And thanks for coming on. I appreciate everybody uh, listening. Uh, and for this episode of. Uh, Ask Alan the podcast, and we'll look for you next time. Uh, right now, Miles and I are going to go out and uh, get some justice. We appreciate it.